following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. The section we've been going through, Jesus has been uh, doing battle with the uh, religious leaders the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes who are really out to get Jesus. They, they are done with him. Uh, they have fully rejected him. And, of course, as we take communion this morning, uh, where we are in Luke is really just the days before uh, his crucifixion. Uh, it's coming down to the end. And um, they, they want him gone. And so they uh, have had a plan that they would do this by one of two ways, either just totally discrediting Jesus before the crowds by saying something, uh, by getting Jesus to say or do something that the crowds would go, oh, this guy is not somebody we want to follow. Uh, or to get him in trouble with Rome so that ideally their, their hope was that Rome would arrest him, that they would put him to death, and, and they would be done with Jesus. Uh, so they've... Uh, uh, been devising these traps. Yes. Okay, Bettina's going to take the fourth and fifth graders. You've been rescued. So fourth and fifth graders, you can follow Willie and Bettina and, and um, thank them. Make sure you thank them, okay? And parents, thank them. <laughs> you know, Imran, uh, you can, you can, uh, you can uh, turn this off in the monitors. No monitor. Okay. Wow. Um, yeah, so Jesus is, uh, you know, they've been trying to trap him in, in these different problems, and each time Jesus has just easily stepped out of the trap. And, and this is the third round. Uh, a new group, a new group takes a shot at, at Jesus. Um, and this time it's going to be the Sadducees. And I can just see how this went down. I can see them, you know, after, after each of these uh, you know, they have these planning meetings. You know how it is. You're on a committee, the, the Get Jesus Killed Committee. And uh, plan A doesn't work. Plan B doesn't work. And I can just see the follow-up meeting as they're having this discussion between them. And finally, the Sadducees just step up and say, you guys are all just a bunch of idiots, right? We've just entrusted this whole thing to idiots. We can do this, right? We're smarter than you guys. We'll show you how it's done. And so they come up with their own plan, their own way that they're convinced they can trap Jesus. So let's look at Scripture. Um, and their strategy revolves around the question of life after death. So we're in uh, chapter 20, verse 27. So there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise, all seven left no children and died. And afterward, afterward the woman died also. That's just a sad and tragic story right there, right? Um, in the resurrection... Therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. 
But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dare to ask him any question. Um, again, Jesus easily steps out of their trap. Uh, and in doing so, he uh, teaches some great principles of affirming that there is indeed eternal life. There is life after death. There's more to this life than what meets the eyes. So let's unpack this a little bit. We'll, we'll look at the passage and then we'll take from it two kind of application points that I think are relevant for us. Um, first, first point is, uh, the story is about, uh, is, there, is there life after death? Um, and the Sadducees were uh, a group of, of a sect among the Jewish leaders uh, made up primarily of the priests. So not, not every Sadducee was a priest, but every priest was a Sadducee. They belonged to that group, that party, and it was quite large. They were the most staunchly conservative of all the Jewish leaders. And oftentimes we think the Pharisees were most conservative, but in terms of, of religious purity, uh, it was the Sadducees, and partly because of their role as priests and high priests, chief priests in the temple. Uh, they, uh, they were hardcore uh, on, on, a, on a number of levels. And uh, they, for example, only held that the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, the Torah or the Pentateuch, were scripture. So they didn't, they didn't give much authority or weight to uh, like the Psalms or the Proverbs or the prophets. Uh, for them, the Bible was just the first five books. They, they uh, rejected completely the oral traditions which were uh, handed down by the rabbis, interpreting much of Scripture. So their view of Judaism was the most narrowly focused and rigid of all of them. And one of the core doctrines that they held to is that there was no afterlife. Uh, and by that, they don't simply mean that there was no bodily resurrection. They held that there was no afterlife, that all that there was to this life is here and now, and when you died, you're done, over finished. Nothing goes on into eternity. And uh, that was their firm conviction and belief. Um, and, th and they're living proof why this is a bad idea, right? Because they were horrible people, even though they were the most re uh, theologically and religiously conservative and strict, they were also the most corrupt. Uh, they were the ones who most callously and most easily could hand Jesus over to be crucified. Right? They were... Uh, notorious for uh, cheating and stealing and misusing people and abusing the poor. Uh, they're good proof that if you don't face an eternal consequence, if there's no notion that someday I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to give an answer for my life, it just doesn't go well. Right? It doesn't go well. So they were um, a very godless group of people, spiritually dead. There was no spiritual life or fire in them. 
And uh, they, they just believed that the, the resurrection was a ridiculous idea. Right? They just, as they conceived of it, it just, in so many ways to them, seemed absurd. And, and if you could put yourself in their thinking, they, they just looked at, at, you know, life after this life, if we were, you know, to be raised from the dead, that the result would be just chaos and confusion. And their question here kind of illustrates how they picture this and why it would be so chaotic. And if you listen to their logic and kind of think like they think, it does kind of make sense, right? Imagine this woman who's poor, poor woman married to seven different brothers, right? And after seven, herself dies childless. And, and the Pharisees pose this question to Jesus. When, 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 you know, if there's a so-called resurrection, the so-called afterlife, you're going to have this woman who's married to seven guys, right? And that just creates all kinds of problems. Um, for some people, that would not be heaven. Right? That would be some version of hell. Right? Um, and, of course, uh, more than that, uh, at this time, they, they were strict uh, adherents of, of uh, monogamous marriage. Right? And earlier in Jewish history, of course, they supported polygamy. But by this time, they decided that was a bad idea. And they were fiercely uh, committed to one husband and one wife. And so they're saying this would create an unholy situation in heaven because she would now be married to seven people at once, and that's clearly godless. It's clearly against what Scripture teaches. And so how could God create a world where you would be forced to live in, in sin and where you would be, live with these kind of complications? So they, they thought this was just an absurd and ridiculous idea. Um, and, and they use it here against Jesus as, as a point to say, look, look how absurd this is, right? The afterlife is just an absurd notion. Now, uh, we, we may look at this, and, and I'm, I'm assuming that most of us <laughs> believe in the afterlife, right? Um, in fact, not because you're necessarily Christians, but just because of the age we live in. Uh, if you look at any kind of survey anywhere, if you survey people anywhere, any country, any culture, it's kind of a universal given that there's more to this life than here and now. Our burial ceremonies reflect that. The way we talk about the dead reflects that. Uh, even for the most um, non-Christian people, there's some sense of that. Right? Uh, and granted, there are a few holdout atheists or who are convinced there's nothing beyond this life. But it's rare. Right? For the most, most people everywhere, there's a sense of, of the afterlife, of the reality of it. Um, but if, if we're honest, and actually Christians may actually have a more honest view on this than maybe our non-Christian friends who, who have this hope of life hereafter. But maybe for some of us who think about these things and who contemplate the reality of it, it does create some ridiculous problems if we think about it. I remember when my daughters were all really young, we would have at the table these great theological discussions, and the topic of eternal life would come up. And um, I remember them saying, it's a horrible idea. We, we don't want to have eternal life. And at first I was kind of shocked by this. I was like, oh, no. Um, and I thought, how can you think that? But as we would talk about it, I realized that, you know, they, they bring up some pretty valid points. Uh, the prospect of eternity can be quite daunting, especially when it's so much unknown and uncertain. Um, and, and, and honestly, let's think about this. If you're really honest and you think about what life is going to be like in heaven, don't you at least at some level worry that it's going to just be extremely boring and pointless, right? You think that? 
I mean, you know, we sing this song, I could sing of your love forever. But could you really, right? Honestly, is that, you know, like, okay, so I could sing of his love for like an hour in church. Hour and 15 minutes? Eh, three hours? No, right? And we're talking like thousands and millions of years. We're going to sing his love forever, and, and we may be thinking, this just sounds really boring, right? Like, I don't know if I could do that, right? And uh, as Lana pointed out, you know, sometimes church gets a little long, and it's only an hour and a half, right? And some of us picture heaven as being like an eternal church service. You can't get any more torturous than this, right? We're going to be stuck in church for eternity. And, you know, uh, it's, it's not necessarily appealing, right? Um, and, and then there's the whole problem of what do, what do you do? What, what, what about our life could have could drive it forward, could, could have meaning or purpose when, when nothing moves, right? when there is no tomorrow, when there is no forward progress, uh, when, in essence, there's no challenges to overcome, there's no obstacles to beat, there's, there's nothing to do, right? You're living in a place that's perfect. There's no fix-up projects, right? Um, the streets are made of gold. Presumably, they don't need to be swept. I don't know. It's just like, what do you do? Right? How does life have meaning in a place where it seems so to us stagnant and, and somewhat dead and, and, and stifled? Right? Um, now, some of you, I, you know, I've just wrecked eternity for you. I've just wrecked heaven. I've just, you know, you're going to go home depressed. We'll talk about it later. Uh, others of you can identify with some of these thoughts. Right? You're like, yeah, I'm not so sure that heaven sounds like such a great place to me. Now, the way we... Uh, remedy this problem is that for a lot of us we we envision heaven as an eternity of doing what we love right that yeah you won't have to work and you won't ever have to build or fix things but they'll have the most amazing golf courses ever and you can play you know 18,000 holes of golf right? instead of just 18 and just imagine the golf score right uh, and because you're perfect your golf game will be perfect and so on um, but, but a thoughtful person even then will think about this and realize, you know, 18,000 holes of golf, when you can do it perfectly, right, kind of takes the challenge out. And really, after like 10,000 years, maybe it's going to get a little old, right? Maybe it's going to get a little old. Um, you know, right now, I, I would say as, as, I, as I view the world, one of people's favorite pl- pastimes is playing on their cell phone, Right? Some of you are doing it now. No, I don't know. Um, <laughs> pretending to read the Bible, yeah, sure. You know, I mean, I mean, can you imagine ten thousand years of scrolling through Facebook and never getting to the end? Okay. I mean, that, that's as close to hell as I can I can imagine, right? So, um, so honestly. Uh, some of the thoughts of the Sadducees are not that far-fetched, right? Some of their uh, fear, some of their uh, misunderstanding about heaven, honestly, they may have some legitimate points there, right? And maybe we can identify with some of that. Uh, but Jesus answers them, and he affirms absolutely that there is, there is an afterlife, and in fact, he flips things around and he, he quickly, quickly unravels their argument. And this is all he says. He says that Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, 
But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, to the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Jesus says, look, you're misunderstanding the problem because you're thinking about this from a very human point of view. And the reality is that life in eternity, the life after, is very different. It is not like you picture it. It is not like it is here. He says, you won't need to, uh, to, to get married. Um, and, and the reason behind all that is that we don't die anymore. Right? When, when you're in eternity and it's eternal life, uh, life will change because you will not die. You will live forever. There's no end. Right? So consequently, there's no need to make babies. Right? Because uh, we, don't need to, we don't need to carry on humanity through procreation. Right? If we're not dying, uh, it would just get really complicated if everybody kept having babies. Right? The numbers would get huge. But, but basically, it just becomes not essential anymore. Right? And Jesus says, you, you won't die. There, there's no need. And, and in this example of the, um, uh, the, the woman with the seven husbands, the, the main point there was that they were looking for an heir to carry on his name. Well, if you don't die, you don't need to carry on your name. You can just be you forever. You don't have to be you through your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren, right? So Jesus' point here is that um, life in eternity will be drastically different. Drastically different. Um, and, and and what about marriage? And, you know, for some of us, this is, uh, this is kind of hard, you know, if... Uh, if you love your spouse and, and, and you have this vision that we're going to spend eternity together, right? Um, and Jesus seems to be saying, no, that's not necessary. Uh, well, what does that mean? Well, again, the point is that when, when we're on this world, on this side of eternity, where we are finite and things are so limited, we don't have time or energy to devote um, to endless relationships what it requires to have deeply intimate connections, right? God said, look, the way you are now with the limits of time, if you can develop that kind of close, deep, intimate relationship with one person, you're doing well, right? And, and you can't exceed that. Life is too short. But in heaven, it's going to be different, right? We, we will have in, in, infinity. We'll have unlimited time to develop the deepest, most significant relationships. We won't have to limit those relationships to one person, right? Uh, it will all be very different. And Jesus doesn't explain what the differences are, and, and it could get really dangerous to go there. Right? Uh, so we don't need to explore that. But we just can say it's different. Uh, so Jesus' point is this. If you had any idea about how different life will be in eternity, you would know what a ridiculous question this is. Right? You're thinking about it with human understanding, with this world's perspective. And it's really a ridiculous question. Right? And Jesus turns it upside down. But he doesn't stop there. He goes further. And he not only shows the, the illogic of their question, but he goes to show that Scripture teaches something very different. And he actually goes to the books of Moses. Uh, he knows that they don't recognize the prophets. So he goes to the Pentateuch. He goes to the Torah. And he says um, that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. 
Uh, in the passage about the bush, that is the burning bush, where God, uh, where Moses calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Uh, Jesus, or Jesus quotes from Exodus, from the writings of Moses, and, and the argument's quite simple. He says, you know, God says to Moses, I am the God of your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and, and he uses the present tense verb, I am. Like, I am right now the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not, I was the God. Right? And so for God to be the God of present tense of dead people, it means they still exist in some sphere or level. They're still there. Right? They did not cease to exist. He says, God cannot be the, the God of dead. Right? Uh, for God to know someone it means he's in relationship with them in some way. And he can only be in relationship with beings that still live. They're still in the present. Uh, so first point Jesus makes simply is that Moses, in his writings, affirms there is life after death. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob continued on long after their bodies had died. In fact, for Moses, it had been over 400, well, well over 400 years, uh, five or 600 years since Abraham had lived, uh, and they were still present to God. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily explain the resurrection. Uh, it's a bit more complicated, uh, and Jesus does not expound it here, but, but it's true that uh, in this verse also teaches the resurrection, and here's why. God's relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was specifically a covenant relationship, Right? God made promises to Abraham. What were the promises? Well, I'll give you a land. I will make you a nation. You will bless the world, right? How many of those promises were fulfilled in Abraham's life on earth? None, right? None. Uh, if Abraham ceased to exist, it would make God a liar because God would not have been able to fulfill those promises to Abraham. He could only have fulfilled them to his offspring. But God made the promises to Abraham himself. He says, you will be a great nation. Well, it's only possible if there's a resurrection. If someday Abraham would inherit and receive the blessing that God promised. Um, and I'll admit it's a bit of a step down, but it's there. And if you could look through the rest of the Old Testament, the Old Testament affirms the resurrection. Right? Um, so uh, the question is, did it work? Did they buy the argument? Well, they did, right? They were silenced once again. And I love, I love what it says in verse, uh, verse 39, that some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. Now, the Sadducees were the only group that denied the resurrection. The Pharisees and the scribes and most of the rest of the Jews held to the resurrection and to the afterlife. So I, I love this. You know, Jesus just puts the Sadducees down. The scribes are cheering. Yes, way to go, Jesus. You tell it. Preach it, brother. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no. We're supposed to be killing you. For, forget that, right? A little conflict of interest there. Uh, and it says that from then on out, they did not ask him any more questions. Okay? If they're going to trap Jesus uh, by, by these kind of problems... They will never get him, and they give up. They raise the white flag. Jesus wins. Knockout round. 
questioning over. Now if they're going to get him, they'll have to do it a different way. They will not do it by tripping him up because he uh, so easily steps out of every problem. Well, what, what can we learn from these, uh, this story? Let me highlight two things that I think are significant. First of all, Jesus is brilliant at untying knots, right? He's brilliant, and he's a great boy scout, right? Um, every time they come with a bigger and more complicated knot, right? And they think they've got this worked out, and they think they've put together a puzzle that Jesus cannot solve every time he so quickly and easily solves it. Uh, you guys all know what a Gordian knot is? Well, I'll tell you in case you don't know. A little history lesson. Gordian knot comes from a myth about Alexander the Great. And the way it goes, uh, in, in the capital of ancient Phrygia, which came to be known as Gordia, Gordium, uh, they were without a king. And so there was an oracle or a prophet that said, the next man who rides in on an ox cart into the city will become king of Phrygia. And so just right after that, in comes this really poor uh, farmer on his ox cart. And they say, presto, he is king. Right? Sounds like a pretty good deal. They, mean they name him as king. And, uh, and celebrating this ter- good, good turn of luck, his son dedicates the ox cart that he rode into to one of the local goddesses. And uh, they tie the ox cart up to uh, a pole, which becomes uh, the palace, in the center of the palace. And uh, he ties it with such an intricate knot, nobody can untangle it. And the reason is that uh, they can't find the loose end. The loose end is hidden deep inside the knot. And so people, for, for hundreds of years, tried to untie this knot and were never able to. Until uh, a couple hundred years later, when uh, Alexander the Great marched into the city uh, to conquer it, And he saw the wagon, and he saw the knot, and he heard the problem. And Alexander the Great, rather than starting with the knot, took the loose end of the rope back to the tongue of the ox cart and untied it from the ox cart first. Then he had a loose end, and he untied the knot. And uh, the point is that it gave him really the right to rule. Uh, This legend would have been true uh, several hundred years before Jesus' day. And it's very likely that Luke and others may have known this story. And I don't know if they were thinking of it when they looked at this passage of Scripture. But it came to my mind. Jesus was brilliant at untying Gordian knots, right? They were never a problem to him. And uh, when you take these three accounts together of them trying to trap Jesus, the message of the whole context is simply this, that there's no problem, no Gordian knot in the Bible or outside the Bible that Jesus cannot solve. He is the great problem solver. He is the master of riddles. Uh, And why is that relevant for us? Well, oftentimes Christians find themselves tripped up by dilemmas, right? There's all these problems both in Scripture and between Scripture and what the world tells us that seem like unsolvable Gordian knots. And, uh, And we probably all have wrestled with them. And like the Jews, people today use these Gordian knots to attack Christianity. And so if you're talking with unbelievers, oftentimes they'll throw up these knots at you and say, okay, if you can untie this knot, then maybe I'll believe, right? So they're they're knots like this. Why is there evil in the world if God is all-powerful and all-good? Okay, how do you answer that? Kind of complicated. It's a tangled knot, right? 
If God is truly loving and good, how can he send some people to eternity in hell? It's a difficult problem. It's a Gordian knot. How could God flood the world in Genesis chapter 11 when there's not that much water on the surface of the earth, scientists tell us? There's not enough water to cover the whole earth. So how do you solve that? Um, Science will tell you it's ridiculous to believe that God created man from dust when there's so much, in their mind, overwhelming evidence that man's evolved over billions and billions of years, right? These are the problems that the world uses to attack us with and say, see, the Bible cannot be true uh, because you can't answer these problems, these dilemmas. Um, And, of course, Christians create their own Gordian knots within the Bible, right? We have all kinds of things we can argue over, sovereignty of God versus the free will of man, and you can go on and on. Um, Well, Jesus shows here that for him there are no problems, right? There is no challenge, no obstacle, no Gordian knot that you can throw at him that he cannot quickly and easily untangle. Um, And he does so for, for three reasons. First of all, Jesus has the right perspective on life. Uh, Why did the Sadducees have a problem? Well, their problem was that they were seeing things too much through earthly eyes, right? They were looking at things and thinking about the afterlife in terms of this life. And so it didn't make sense to them. And Jesus says, well, I'm looking at it from a different vantage point. I'm not looking at it from the vantage point of earth. I see it from the vantage point of heaven. And from that vantage point, it's easy. It's easy, right? Um... I think that's true for most of the problems we face. We're trying to find the end of the rope that's bound in this earth, and we can't find it. But there's another end of the rope that is bound to God's realm in eternity. And when you start from that end of the rope, it's easy to untie the knot, right? Or easier. Um, Jesus has a different perspective. So he sees the problem much differently than we do. Secondly, uh, Jesus has the right authority for truth. I love in in this argument, Jesus quickly shoots holes in their logic with a logic that is far superior to theirs. He he easily demonstrates the faultiness of their thinking. But he does not stop there. He doesn't say, look, because I can reason this out better than you, you should believe me. What does he say? He says, no. Uh, your, your idea is illogical, but more importantly, it's not biblical. Right? You're missing the truth of Scripture. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he's very careful to back up everything he teaches with the authority of Old Testament Scripture. Okay? Um, the Scripture is God-inspired word. In every word, in every point, it's message when rightly understood, is God's truth, right? And it always is right. Now, we may not always interpret it correctly. We may not always understand it correctly. But God's word, rightly understand, is absolute truth. And it can never contradict science or history. If there's a problem, it's not with Scripture. It's with science. It's with history. It's with our understanding. And Jesus makes it very clear when he says, Moses says... He says, don't just take my word for it. Look at Scripture and understand what the Bible says. Uh, Is Genesis to Revelation, is it our 
final and full authority of what we think or believe? Or do we get ourselves tangled up in these knots because we give too much weight and credence to what science is teaching? Here, here's, here's, here's a bit of insight, okay? You might want to write this down. Believe it or not, science is not always right. Okay? Science is not always right. right. How do we know that? Well, we know that because science changes every day. Every day, right? Right? Uh, my wife and I get into these debates because, uh, you know, we read too much on Facebook. And, um, you know, there's all these diets. And one day you should eat this and not eat that. The next day you should eat that and not eat this, right? And so, our, you know, we're always kind of getting into what we, what we read and how what we read contradicts what you read, right? And it's all science, right? Is science that authoritative? Apparently not, right? It is not unchanging. God's word is unchanging, it is not permanent. God's word is permanent. It's flawed. God's word is not flawed. That's interesting. Um, speaking of science and eternal life, uh, for many, many uh, centuries, really, since about the 1700s, the claims of science have argued that there cannot be afterlife, right? There's no scientific proof that we live beyond the grave. And for a long time, scientists have been quite adamant uh, that we're just animals, we live, we die, it's over, right? Uh, well, I just saw this recently in the, in the UK, uh, a, a research study has come out that's showing scientific evidence that we have conscious awareness even when our brain stops working, right? And scientists have studied uh, cases of uh, many people have had um, near-death experiences where their heart has stopped long enough that all brain activity has stopped, and they have documented cases where these people, long after their brain stopped working and their heart stopped, they have clear and vivid understanding of detailed things that were going on in the, in the OR room or emergency room, wherever they were, right? And so all of a sudden science is saying now, well, maybe we do have scientific evidence that life goes on, right? Good, good for science, you know, good for science. But is that why I'm going to believe in the afterlife, or because of the one of 9,000 books that somebody had where they saw lights at the end of a tunnel and, you know. Is that why I believe in the afterlife? No. Why should we believe in it? Because Scripture says so, right? Because Scripture clearly teaches it. All right, and, and thirdly, so uh, you get the right perspective, uh, the right authority, but also Jesus is just the right person. And uh, I wish Jesus could have just said, yeah, just watch. You guys, I don't know why he didn't say this. It would have been so tempting. It's like, just try and kill me. Just see what happens. Right? Uh, and exactly that's what happens. They do kill him. And what happens? He doesn't stay dead. Right? Three days later, he rises again. Uh, and he lives and he is seated and he reigns on high. Amen. So here's the thing. Uh, I don't know what problems you wrestle with, right? I don't know what things people throw at you that, you, that trip you up in your faith, that make you scratch your head and go, wow, I, I don't know, that is confusing. What do you do with that? Well, first of all, seek Jesus' wisdom, right? Seek the scriptures. Try to unravel it by getting God's and, and Jesus' heavenly perspective on the problem. And, and see what Scripture says, right? Let Scripture unravel it for you. Let Jesus, through his Spirit, unravel it for you. He's good at it, and right? he's good at it. Uh, what happens when you pray and you seek and you read the Bible and the knot just gets bigger and worse? Right? 
And sometimes it does, right? Sometimes it does. Well, Jesus is not going to give you the answer to every problem. But you need to have confidence that it's not a problem for him, right? Someday you're going to get to heaven and you're going to bring this massive knot that you've been carrying around your whole life. You're going to hand it to Jesus. And with one twist of the wrist, he's going to undo it and you're going to go, wow, why didn't I see that? It was so easy, right? Know that there is no problem, there's no dilemma, there's no conflict that Jesus does not have figured out, right? We don't need to stress out about these things and feel that our faith is somehow under attack because we can't solve the problem. Jesus knows the answer, right? All right, so that's one thing we can do with this is just remember and see uh, Jesus is the master problem solver. Second thing, real quick. um, Jesus teaches that there is an afterlife. We are made for eternity, and we need to be prepared for that. It's the whole point. (laughs) It's the whole point. And that's what is at the root of most religions, if not all. It's the reality that, yeah, there is more to this life, and we will meet our maker, and there will be a day of judgment. Be prepared. Be prepared. Jesus says this, The sons of this age, marrying, are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry or are given in marriage. Jesus says it's not for everybody to be raised to eternal life. Everybody's raised to eternity, but not everybody will experience a life with God for eternity. He says that is given to those who are found worthy. How do you know you are found worthy? Well, Jesus and the, the, the gospel affirms over and over, you are worthy because you are in Christ. Right? We're never worthy on our own. We are worthy if we are found in Christ. So if you are in Jesus, when you stand before God in judgment, He will see the righteousness of Christ and Jesus will be your advocate and he will uh, plead your case that you are worthy for eternal life. It's the only way. And we need to make sure we are prepared for that day. Um, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, we cannot hope for what we do not desire. We cannot hope for something that we do not desire. Uh, there's a lot of things about eternity that we may find undesirable. This whole marriage thing is a problem for a lot of people. And like the big question for a lot of people, I'll just say it, okay, if you have young children, you can close their ears. But, you know, I'll just say it because everybody's thinking it. You mean we're not going to have sex in heaven? <sighs> right? That's the big question. And, and like a lot of people are like, you know, sign me out, right? I'm telling you, there's no sex in hell either. If there's no sex in heaven... There's none in hell, okay? So, uh, so so, what do we do with some of this, right? Well, first of all, I don't know that Jesus says that, okay? He doesn't, he's not that detailed and explicit, so I don't know. Um, um, and there's a lot of other things about heaven we're worried about, right? Like there's one great feast, but then we don't eat forever. Like, you know, eh, worried about that. You know, are we going to just really sit around and play the harp? I don't like the harp, right? Um, well, no, there's the flute. Ah, that's, you know, I'm not really crazy about that one either. Um, here's the thing you need to understand that I think Scripture teaches. Everything in this life, everything in this life is a shadow 
of heaven. It is a it is a picture, an imperfect picture, but a picture that points to eternity. Right? The way God created us and what it means for us to live on earth and be in relationships and enjoy and experience life are all faint shadows of something much realer and greater in heaven. Right? All of it, all, all of it, the things we enjoy, the pleasures, the loves, uh, the meaning, the, the things that give us fulfillment and purpose, right? All these things point to in our pictures of something much bigger and greater and more meaningful in heaven. And we don't know what that is, right? It's hard for us to imagine it. I don't know if you're like me, but for, for me, for many, many years, my whole picture of, of, of Israel, of Galilee and of Jerusalem and of, you know, the places where Jesus went, Nazareth, are, are, are mostly formulated by Sunday school pictures. You may have this problem, right? So when I think about, you know, the, the Sea of Galilee and Nazareth and, and Bethlehem, it all pops up into my head as very cheap and cheesy two-dimensional cartoon coloring sheets, right? Um, and so for a lot of times, picturing Jesus in the Holy Land and, and what was going on there is very odd because it's a world of cartoon, right? Very poorly done cartoon, and even where my childhood was informed by real life pictures, they were so fuzzy and weird that it just created this real odd image to me of the, you know, of the Holy Land. But several years ago, Denise and I were able to go to the Holy Land and really see these places. And you know what? They're real. <laughs> like the Sea of Galilee has like real water in it, and it's not like little, you know, little waves. It's just it's like it's like a normal lake. Who knew, right? And there's like real trees, and it's a real place. Who knew, right? It just, it just blew my mind, and it just radically changed my view of now when I picture these places, I picture the real places. And it's, it's cool. It's, it's much more depth, right? Much more reality to it. Well, I think a lot of that's how it is with heaven, right? Right now we're living in a two-dimensional cartoon drawing in comparison to the reality of what God intends for us in eternal life, right? We're experiencing things that are so shallow and so weak and thin compared to the real thing that it pictures, that it points to. Now, does it mean that the things we experience now are false? No, they're not false. They're very real, but they're real representations of something much bigger and much greater. So marriage and sex and chocolate cake and ice cream and beautiful sunsets and art and, and the things that we love, uh, meaningful discussions with close friends, um, the joy that we get from our grandchildren or our children, uh, the longing for home. Are any of you kind of homesick sometimes? And you long for a place. Well, that place is never satisfied by the things of this world. Those longings and those things all point to a much fuller and, and greater reality in heaven. Right? Do you have the hope of eternal life. But you will not have that hope if you don't desire it. Right? If you don't long for what God has for us in eternity. Um, life here is hard, right, sometimes. But we live You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.
live with an eternal destiny? Are we prepared for it?